Straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins, from the Collegium for Advanced Studies at the University of Helsinki. Does God love the Canaanites? If you've read your Bible, you might think the answer is no. There is no way that God could love the Canaanites based on what we see in the book of Joshua, because there it sounds like God is commanding genocide, and genocide does not sound very loving. Today, I have Dr. Randall Rouser on to discuss how we should interpret these passages with the love of Christ in mind. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. Any donation amount helps me in so many different ways. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's Randall and I chatting about the Canaanites. Enjoy. All right, so so Randall, why don't you start by telling us a bit about your brand new book? So it's called Jesus Loves Canaanites. Like, what's the big idea of the book? Well, the big idea is that Jesus loves Canaanites. Um, and interestingly, the title tends to elicit one of two responses from people. Either they're like, wow, great title. That's awesome. I agree. Or they're like, what are you talking about? So <laughs> it's sort of interesting. And, and I think that that in and of itself is kind of getting to the nub of an issue there. Uh, the subtitle is Biblical Genocide in Light of Moral Intuition. So the big question there that kind of sets this book apart from some others in this field of biblical violence is to really have a more intentional focus upon the nature and content of moral intuition, moral perception, and how that ought to inform our theological reflection and hermeneutics. So uh, I was actually just thinking this morning, uh, one way to sort of illustrate the the point of it is with 8 minutes and 46 seconds. And as many of us will know, that is the time that took for George Floyd to die under the knee of a police officer. And what people, what there's been a real emphasis on the last year is you watch that video, all 8 minutes and 46 seconds, and you'll get an idea of police brutality and why Black Lives Matter. So that concrete reflection upon moral, or in this case, egregiously immoral actions is really essential as a building block for moral reflection and ethical living. And so I'd like to, to propose, for example, a newspaper test. Imagine in the newspaper that you read uh, that in the Swat Valley of Afghanistan, uh, some tribal elders and parents uh, took one of the children of, of the parents out to the edge of the village and stoned that child to death for being insubordinate. Uh, because of this is the imposition of a Sharia law within this region. And you'd like, this is horrible. I'm absolutely offended. This is a war crime. It's an atrocity. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's Deuteronomy 21 being applied <laughs> in, in the real world. And so mm-hmm. the question is, um, if you have a problem with things that you read in the newspaper, if you think, well, they're moral atrocities, then what about when those same kinds of actions are described within the Bible? An even bigger one, and the one that I spent a couple chapters on, is the Rwandan genocide in 1994, which was a close contact genocide, by which I mean people using sharp implements like machetes and masu, which are like studded clubs, to target another population, Hutus killing Tutsis. And if you think that is intrinsically an evil action to do, this this or set of actions, uh, genocide of one people, then what do you do when you have something similar described in a book like Joshua? Mm-hmm. So for me, the challenge is let's let's begin to read the Bible the same way we read the newspaper, in a sense, 
not and not in the sense that dispensationalists sometimes do it, but rather in the sense of we need to really bring our moral intuitions in line with what we're reading in Scripture. Okay, so I want to get into some of the details of the book then. So you focus on a passage in Deuteronomy about the Canaanites. So tell me what that passage says, and then like we'll talk about how to interpret it in a bit. But just for the moment, I just want to know like what the passage says, and then anything you can do to kind of help us understand what genocide might look like in the ancient Near Eastern world. Yeah, uh, so maybe very quickly, genocide as a term is a modern concept. Uh, it was adopted by the United Nations after it was first coined by a guy named Raphael Lemkin, and it refers to the killing or destruction of a genos, of a kind of thing. Of course, that comes from Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the, the key idea behind genocide is that you're not just killing people. In fact, genocide need not be killing any people. Rather, the idea of genocide is intentionally to try to destroy an identity, a cultural or ethnic or religious identity. Um, and you can certainly apply the term retroactively. So uh, the United States uh, just courted some controversy, at least in Turkey, when they declared the 1915 actions of Turkey to be genocidal. Uh, and of course, uh, so by that, anyway, by that token, you can, in principle, call ancient events genocidal as well. So we have t- passages like Numbers 31 that appear to describe genocidal actions against the uh, Midianites or the Amalekites in First Samuel 15. What I focus on in particular are two passages in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 20, which set up the policy that Yahweh has for the Israelites entering the land of Canaan. And then the description of how that plays out in Joshua 1 to 12 is also my focus. But I'll, for the sake of time, I'll just read through maybe one of them. So Deuteronomy mm-hmm. chapter 7, 2 to 5. This will give us a sense of, of what we're looking at. So when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Now, the, the translation destroy them totally is from haram, which is the verb to, to destroy, to turn over to destruction, to commit to the band, something like that. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy, do not intermarry with them, do not give your daughters or their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Okay, uh, and then Deuteronomy 20 kind of expands on that and is a little more precise where it says, uh, nations, the tribal peoples that are within the land, you are to destroy them totally, leave alive nothing that breathes. Nations that are outside the land but neighboring the territory, you are to give them an ultimatum, surrender and become slaves, or if you choose to fight, we will kill all the men and then you'll become slaves. So so that's sort of the, how that expands on Deuteronomy 7. So what you clearly have here is if you read that in the newspaper, right, that this was happening between two tribes in sub-Saharan Africa, you would say that's genocide. Right? They're intentionally trying to destroy this other genos, uh, destroying all their cultural implements, terrorizing the population psychologically, killing them en masse. That certainly would meet standard definitions of genocide. So, um, and then, and then you have in, just very quickly in, in Joshua 6 21, mm-hmm. it describes that this happens in Jericho. So it says, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys were all killed. And likewise, Joshua 8, 24 and 25 describes something similar in the city of Ai once that city falls. So you clearly have here, the newspaper test is, yeah, this would be considered genocide today. We should consider it genocide in the ancient world as well. Yeah. So, I mean, so this, I mean, this all sounds really bad. And I, cause I mean, I take it as obvious that mass genocide is just, I mean, that's just a morally bad thing, but I've got these other intuitions too, that might kind of conflict. So like, I, I also take it as obvious that I should follow the commands of God. So it seems like I've 
got some kind of conflict here when it comes to my own ethical thinking and theorizing with between these two cases. So could you tell me a bit about how you approach you know, like moral intuitions and then the will of God? One way to think about this is, of course, that we got our moral intuitions wrong. So you could consider that, um, yeah, we, we think genocide is this really horrible thing, but maybe there are these extreme instances where it is morally justified. And I mean, it is uh, important to keep in mind. I mean, I'm an epistemic fallibilist in the sense that I think that we could be wrong about all sorts of things, even sure. seemingly deeply seated moral intuitions, logical intuitions, we, we could be wrong. I think someone like Paul endorses this in 1 Corinthians 13, we see darkly as through a glass. And so we can give all sorts of examples where people are wrong. I mean, just look at a contemporary debate like abortion. Mm -hmm. it, it's fascinating to me how two different people can look at the same data, right, and draw two different conclusions about the ethics of elective abortion. So there's no doubt that you could potentially be in error here. What you do have to do is then carefully reflect through concrete examples, which I give with an extended description of what Rwanda would have looked like. And then ask the reader, you know, do you think that that really is something that God could have commanded in another context? And if not, then let's look at the other option. The other option is to think, well, have we misconstrued how the text should be interpreted? Does this text, in fact, accurately relay something that God commanded in the past or not? And I think that when you weigh those options, the scales come down heavily on retain your moral intuitions and look for an alternative reading of the passage. And that just becomes even clearer, I think, when you look carefully at the life and teachings of Jesus as the interpretive grid through which we do our theological reflection and our interpretation of the Old Testament. Okay, so it seems like our situation is this. So we've got these intuitions that genocide's a bad thing. Because, I mean, this newspaper test you're talking about, I mean, that's, that just strikes me as very obvious. Like, when I see cases like this, I just have this moral revulsion. That's bad. But then we also have this biblical passage that you've, you've read to us where it says that, it see, well, it seems like God's commanding to, like, a genocide of the Canaanites. And so I can see now why Christians are going to be very anxious. Like, how do we interpret this passage? So in the book, though, you give five principles for interpreting scripture that you think are going to help us with this. So like, what are those five principles? Yeah, the, the first principle I think is important from a Christian perspective. And I mean, this is unapologetically a Christian hermeneutic. So I make no apologies to Richard Dawkins. I'm not particularly concerned if he's not impressed by my principles. <laughs> I'm not impressed by his. So my first principle is the perfect God principle that I interpret scripture with the starting point that it is in some sense connected to the intentions and actions of a perfect being, including moral perfection. However you want to cash all that out, I think that God exemplifies moral perfection. And so uh, we, and also, you know, of course, omniscience and so on, and with perfect wisdom, so that we have to read the text consistent with the idea that it came ultimately from an author or however we want to construe God in this respect, who was himself perfect and thus doesn't make egregious errors. Mm -hmm. Now, this leads into the second, which I call the two authors principle. And I think this is a really important one. So, uh, once we recognize that God is involved in scripture, human beings clearly are as well. What we then can recognize is, okay, there are two authors to the text. Now, the next thing important with the two authors principle is to recognize that those two authors can have different intentions when, uh, with respect to various inscriptions and in text within the, within the Bible. Uh, and so think analogously of a relationship between a human editor and a human author. Mm -hmm. The editor takes and appropriates the words of that human author and puts them into a larger text. And when the editor does that, the editor can have various intentions in using that text, which may differ from the intentions of the original human author. 
And I think we have something very similar going on here. So that God appropriates the speech of human beings sovereignly for his own purposes within Scripture. His intent and purpose behind his appropriation of their words may differ from that which they intended. It, it may include additional meaning and implications which they did not intend. Or it could actually contradict. Maybe God is using ironically something that they said. So there's that two authors principle. What that also allows you to do, by the way, is to affirm a doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Hmm. It is biblical inerrancy, not with respect to the intentions of the human author, but of the divine author. Whatever God is doing with a text is without error. It doesn't follow that what the human author is doing is without error. Right. God could have sovereignly appropriated their error for his uh, inerrant purposes. Now, I do give examples of this. I like cinema. Uh, so in the in the book, I give, for example, uh, St- Stanley Kubrick in The Shining, uh, one of my favorite films of all time. In fact, I liked it so much that I took my wife to the Timberline Lodge where the external shots of the mm-hmm. film were done for our honeymoon. So that was, that was interesting. That's very nice. Yeah, it was very romantic. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, one of the things in The Shining that's ironic or interesting is that there are various cinematic goofs, and I use scare quotes when I say that, where, for example, there are continuity errors all over the film. One of them is when Jack is hacking down the door to get at Wendy and she's hiding in the bathroom. In one scene, there is one panel of the door that he's just hacked through, but the other panel of the door is still intact. The very next scene, a second later, turns back to Jack and you see two panels missing. Now that is what we would call a glaring continuity error. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have a master director like Kubrick, you say, oh, there's something else going on here. Because Kubrick doesn't do things like that on mistake, by mistake. You have to look for an intention behind it. And I'm arguing for the same reading here. When we find an error in the humans, well, maybe God's doing something with it. Uh, The canon principle is the third one. This is the idea that, well, this is a unified text. All 66 or 73 books, however your canon works out, is all part of a unified uh, divine revelation to us. And as a result, you interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And that means you can do some things that hate, that, or that I should say that some the biblical critics hate, which is interpreting the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Sure, yeah. Now, there's this understandable fear about projecting asegetically uh, a meaning that it maybe isn't there and so on. But if you do believe that God is a divine author or editor, if you want to think of it in those terms, then indeed there can be meaning that God gave in light of the New Testament, which we can read into the Old. So that's the canon principle. And then, in a sense, the most important principles for me are the Jesus principle, which is that the life and teachings of Jesus become the norming norm for interpreting the rest of Scripture. So when Jesus says, for example, interprets the law in Matthew 5 by saying, it has been said, hate your enemy, I say, love your enemy, and pray for those who persecute you. Passages like that, I think, become a norming norm for interpreting other passages where Mm -hmm. neighbors seem to be dehumanized and objectified or enemies or dehumanized and objectified. And then the love principle, which I think is actually stated in 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says that really you ought to, uh, that, that the purpose of Scripture is being God-breathed is to teach, rebuke, and correct, and train in righteousness in order to make us like Jesus, in essence. So the way that Augustine put it 16 centuries ago is, essentially always reads to us to increase the love of God and neighbor. Recognize that your neighbor is often from the outgroup, the enemy, so that if you are reading the Bible in a way that dehumanizes or objectifies or otherizes your neighbor or your enemy, then you're reading it wrong. And so I think that's clearly what's happening when people read so as to justify the eradication of entire populations. So we are justified in revisiting the text and seeking an alternate reading. 
Okay, so we've got these principles here. Now, in the book, though, you, you discuss several different ways of interpreting these passages. And so the first view you call like the genocide apologist. So like, just tell me what that view says. This is a very common view, particularly in the last five centuries or so. I give John Calvin as an example, a contemporary example, someone like Gleason Archer or Eugene Merrill. And so essentially what they're doing is they're not necessarily appealing to the term genocide. Some do. Obviously, Calvin would not have been aware of it. Mm -hmm. But they are endorsing a historical reading of the text, which accepts that God commanded and affirmed actions which do meet the legal definition of genocide. So that's the, the essence of the position. Yeah, it is genocidal and God commanded it. So it's good. Okay. Right. So, okay. So God said it, therefore it's good. And they're just full up front. Yep. This is yep. genocide, except in the case of Calvin, but his definitions are going to fit our contemporary definition of genocide. Yeah. Okay. So now why do you think that, like, what are, what's like a problem that you think that view faces? Well, I think one, one problem that it faces is the, the one I kind of already touched upon, which is careful reflection on what genocide looks like on the ground should utterly repel us from that mm -hmm. reading. And I mean, it's one thing to talk about watching George Floyd's death for eight minutes and 43 seconds. It's another thing to watch it. So mm -hmm. analogously, let me just read an, a quick excerpt from Romeo Dallaire, who was head of UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda mm -hmm. during the 1994 genocide, when he entered the Gikondo Parish Church. He says, no one was spared. A pregnant woman was disemboweled and her fetus severed. Women suffered horrible mutilation. Men were struck on the head and died immediately or lingered in agony. Children begged for their lives and received the same treatment as their parents. Genitalia were a favorite target. The victims left to bleed to death. There was no mercy, no hesitation, no compassion. Now, one thing that comes through in that description, which I think I, really, I want to emphasize in the book, is that complicity in genocide for people who are not psychopaths creates extreme psychological distress, right? When you inflict that kind of action upon other human beings, the result is extreme psychological distress. And one way in the short term to deal with that stress is to further otherize and dehumanize the people you are attacking. So that leads naturally to actions such as mutilation and torture and rape of the victims. And that's what you had throughout Rwanda. So mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that people like Calvin are attributing to God and to the Israelites. And this leads to this profound irony that the Israelites are commanded to go into Canaan and inflict war crimes upon the Canaanites and war crimes, which in effect are soul destroying for the perpetrators, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually corrupting the Israelites themselves and their own society by torturing, mutilating, killing, and driving out the Canaanites. So that their very means by which they're supposed to maintain purity is the means by which they themselves, I believe, are morally corrupted. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that there's just a huge problem. And, and again, I would just come back to the life and teachings of Jesus. I cannot envision the Jesus that I see described in the Gospels picking up a sword and hacking apart an infant. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then I think I have powerful reasons to question the genocide apologists. No, th this seems right to me because when I've read about the Rwanda genocide and just, I mean, some of the propaganda machine that they created to convince people to go out and kill their neighbors this way, I mean, the, the amount of psychological manipulation involved is just is just horrendous. And then, and then when you actually look at the actual the actions that took place after that, it is heart wrenching. And so, yeah, the idea that God's like, yeah, go do that, go do that, that's a good thing. <sighs> that kind of makes me want to say that's not a God worthy of worship like that. If, if God really did command that. So 
yeah. And so the, the principles that you laid out earlier of, well, if, if God's really perfect, he's not going to ask you to do like something horrendous and terrible. So yeah. So I can see why this is going to be a massive problem for this view. So people might want to go, let's find something else. So, but you've, you've got that covered. So you're like, here's the next view. So you've got something uh, like a, a way uh, to look at it based on just war theory. So tell me a bit about this view. Yeah. The, uh, probably the most significant uh, contributors or defenders of this view uh, would be Paul Copan and Matthew Flanagan in their book, Did God Really Command Genocide? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so so their view is that, well, if you really read the text more carefully, then, then you can see actually what's being described is not genocide. It's closer to what we would call today just war. Now, it may not necessarily be exactly the same thing. There still could be a unique dispensation of God's actions in history, but we can definitely ameliorate the problem or mitigate the issue. And the way that they do that is by making, I think, some interesting points. So first of all, they say, well, if we look at the way that war is described in the ancient Near East, there's a lot of hyperbolic war rhetoric, exaggeration for effect. And so they propose, well, when you read, kill them, leave nothing, leave alive, nothing that breathes. Maybe that's just exaggeration for effect. Uh, and then they say, uh, and this comes from Richard Hess, who has influenced their views, that if you look at uh, the proper understanding of the so-called cities, places like Jericho and I, that in fact we should understand these as more close to military encampments. So, for example, I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and back in the 18th, 19th century, all that was here was called Fort Edmonton, right? And it was mm-hmm. a, it was a fort with a military kind of outpost and traders and so on. And maybe it's closer to something like Fort Edmonton, the city as we think of it today. And, and so then the idea becomes, well, God sent the Israelites in to kill everyone in the military citadels, but the rest of the population, they were just going to drive them out. Because mm-hmm. um, when I read Deuteronomy 7 earlier, we saw that that's also the language there of driving out the population. Um, so that's sort of the essence of their view. There's also a few other details like the idea that, well, the infants were spared um Canada infants were spared growing up in a horrible society and instead sent straight to heaven. I frankly don't think that kind of argument is worth a response. I think it's appalling. But let me talk about the other ones. So, um, oh, and actually just one more that they they also say, well, really the point here was to destroy the Canaanite identity as such. Mm-hmm. It was to remove that identity rather than to just kill people. Okay, so to, if I can just jump into maybe a critique of it, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, right. go for it. The war rhetoric, exaggeration for effect stuff sounds fine until you look at passages like Joshua 6.21 and um, uh, Joshua 8.24 and 25, which quite explicitly describe all the residents of the city, young and old, men and women and animals being killed. Mm-hmm. So so it's 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 not just, hey, let's kill them all. Hey, yeah, woohoo. No, it's actually being quite precise that all of the people, including some civilians, were killed. And in the book, I point out that this is very common, not only in ancient Fort Edmonton, but today in a military base like Fort Hood in, in Texas, for example, there's a large civilian population that sustains the soldiers. And in fact, I looked it up. Fort Hood has something like 800 children living on it. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine if, if Mexican armies came across the border of Texas and just killed everybody in Fort Hood? I mean, that would be a crime against humanity. It would include children, the elderly, not just soldiers. It would have been mm-hmm. the same thing in, in ancient Israel. In terms of the driving out language, really what they're doing there is saying, hey, uh, we don't like genocide, so let's go for ethnic cleansing, which is, that's what ethnic cleansing is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, okay, maybe it's not quite as egregious in terms of war crimes. It's still pretty bad. 
Yeah. And then the last one is, is they say, well, hey, let's focus on the fact that it's really about removing Canaanite identity as such. The irony there is that that is what genocide is, right? Mm -hmm. It's the destruction of an identity. The Israelites were trying to destroy Canaanite identity. So I think that uh, Copen and Flanagan, for all their Herculean efforts on that paradigm, what they end up giving us is really functionally still genocide and ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, this is... Yeah. Okay. That's, that's pretty bad. I can see why this is the case. And yeah. And, and I mean, I know, I know you have a, a lot of respect for those guys because they do really good work, but on this case, mm, okay. I can see why you want to say, go back to the drawing board. Let's try again. So it's, it, I mean, yeah. just see, it, it's, it's a little bit like um, in, in the, in the late 17th century, somebody doing mammoth work to, to keep the uh, Ptolemaic theory of the universe afloat. And you're like, mm -hmm. you are a genius, but mm -hmm. I think your efforts are better used elsewhere. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People say that about my own work all the time. They're like, <laughs> could you just stop all that and just go back to that? I'm like, I don't know. Okay. So, so yeah. So we'll, let's look at another uh, uh, place here. So, so sometimes people, like, if they don't know how to like interpret a particular biblical passage or they just don't know what to do with it, they'll give like a so-called like spiritual interpretation of the text. Uh, and so like, what would a, what would a, like a spiritual interpretation of these uh, kill all the Canaanites uh, look like? These were views that, that were actually quite common in the church from the patristic era right through to to the Renaissance Reformation era, at which point they fell out of favor because there was a greater focus upon regaining the, the original historical author, human author. Uh, but people like Origen sought to deal with this biblical violence. Origen has a collection of sermons on Joshua where they spiritualize it. And so Origen says, well, really the way that we should think about this is it's telling the, the life of the individual in the process of sanctification, where Canaanites are interpreted as sinful impulses, essentially, and you need to eradicate sinful impulses from your life. And that, that of course, that, that interpretation hasn't been common today, but uh, people like C.S. Lewis actually tried that out in his, I think it's Meditations on the Psalms, where he talks about infamously or famously, depending mm -hmm. how you look at it, he talks about Psalm 137, where it says, mm -hmm. dash their babies against the rocks. And he says, we should think about those babies as sinful impulses and dash the little bastard's brains against the rocks, I think is what he says. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you spiritualize it, then then that, that can work nicely, I guess. Um, there are a lot of problems, as, as I probably <laughs> suppose you can imagine with that. I mean, yeah. among the problems, um, of course, the, the one big problem is the asegetical problem. So it seems like you're just projecting meaning back onto the text. What are the controls for that? Another problem is, did it actually happen? Are, are, mm -hmm. Is this just a way of distracting us from the content? And there's dispute as to whether Origen believed these events happened or not. But I think we need to deal centrally with that issue. Now, mm -hmm. another issue is, is um, well, th there's a problem with dehumanizing populations when you say, well, within the narrative, they are sinful impulses. I mean, Gregory of Nyssa does something similar when it comes to the exodus of Egypt, where he says the Egyptians should be viewed as like sinful impulses. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of justifies killing the firstborn, but we shouldn't interpret it historically. And I think, well, yeah, but there are Egyptians out there. We don't want to say, hey, in this narrative, you represent evil, sinful impulses. I mean, imagine doing that today, saying, well, here's a story about black people and white people, and but it's symbolic. And the Black people just represent symbolic evil. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, having said that, there are contemporary spiritualizers. Um, I call them that. And people like Douglas Earle and Jerome Creech, who try to give a close reading of the text that avoids the asegetical and subjective problem, but still looking for some sort of spiritualized interpretation. So, for example, 
well, if we read these texts as having been originally reached final form for their reading audience in around the 600s BC, this was the time when they were going into exile, potentially in Babylon, in which case the text now reads for them as retain your spiritual purity in exile rather than a glorious campaign of victory. And you also have within the text suggestions that we should marginalize the very in-group, out-group distinctions that are assumed in the text because it says, well, Rahab was included, Achan was thrown out. Um, so that maybe you can kind of read the text more consistently with your Jesus intuitions and your moral intuitions. So that's a contemporary approach to spiritualizing. Hmm. Now, I think the historical point that you brought up, that's that's the one that stands out to me the most. So like, imagine like a, a counter possible world where I actually become very famous and someone writes a, a, a biography of me. And there's like certain parts of my life that have been really awful, and really horrible. And it's like, but those things happened. And someone came along and said, yeah, but like, let, you know, let's just like have a spiritual reading of this, this, this part of like Ryan's life. Like I would be looking down from heaven and going, what's wrong with you? Like that actually happened. That was horrible. What, what world are you living in? Like, I guess that's my initial reaction. And I guess I had never really thought too much about that with the spiritual interpretations because I've always just kind of dismissed them as like, that's just weird and silly. But this, I find it kind of like slightly offensive, I guess, at the moment of like, if these cases really did happen, you really are like treating these people in their situation in a very, very bizarre way that it just doesn't, that clashes against my moral intuitions, I guess. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I, I have a problem. I agree. Like, like it's, it's, it, it's not treating the text. I think the way it should be treated. Now, having said that, let me just say, however, that mm-hmm. one of the outcomes, like from a pragmatic direction, what I'm most concerned with, to be honest, is uh, that good reading is, uh, in accord with the Jesus principle, is reading mm-hmm. with the growth of love of God and neighbor. Mm-hmm. And I would rather have somebody read the text with a sort of arbitrary projected spiritualization that nonetheless leads to the outcome that they become more like Jesus, yeah. than that they read it faithful to the historical details in a way that leads them to dehumanize their neighbors. Yeah. Um, so so I, I'm going to just kind of throw that out there. And for that reason, mm-hmm. like this uh, origin's reading was so influential in the medieval period that according to Douglas Earl, who did a study on this, that it is rare if ever that that it is the Joshua narrative is appealed to to justify the campaigns against Muslims because it had been so spiritualized within the minds of medieval readers. Hmm. They rather went to the book of Maccabees for an appeal. And I think that that's actually a good result. So I'm happy Mm -hmm. with the spiritualizing approach in that sense. But I think you've raised a good point nonetheless. That is a really interesting plot twist. I, I didn't. I was not aware of this because, yeah, I mean, Joshua does seem like a great place to go to. But mm-hmm. if you don't have a whole long tradition of spiritualizing that, then, then yeah, I guess you go to Maccabees because you don't have a long tradition of spiritualizing yeah. that that passage. Uh, wow. Okay, that's an interesting plot twist. Um, I'm going to set that aside though because I want to get into like another view that you look at in the book. So you've got this other view um, called the providential errantist approach. So like, tell me, tell me what this view is. Well, that goes back to the two authors principle I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So this idea that you can have the divine author makes no errors. The human author may make errors. And if so, the human author's errors are included inherently by the divine author. So that we should look upon any human errors within the text as providentially included, hence providential errancy. So uh, one simple example I give in in the book is is with respect to the imprecatory psalms that the imprecatory psalms say all sorts of things that I think we should literally reject, like that God laughs at the coming destruction of the wicked, or that blessed are those who take their babies and dash them against the rocks and things like mm-hmm. that. We, we shouldn't think about God in those terms, and we shouldn't think about our reaction to those who oppress us in those terms. 
But um, I think that those texts are still inherently included from a divine perspective. In part, I think that you can view them as modeling the human experience of oppression and the human experience of how we want to think about God when we are Mm. under duress and when we are angry. And so we can identify with the psalmist. And I I give an example uh, from a Canadian news. So there was a few years ago, there was a drunk driver, a guy driving home in his Ferrari in Ontario in Canada. And he drove into a van uh, driven by a grandfather and his three grandchildren, killed the grandfather and the three grandchildren, but the guy driving the Ferrari is okay. So he, he goes to, and he's sentenced uh, in for, for this, for vehicular manslaughter, I guess. And then the mother's there. And the mother says, I wouldn't wish the kind of pain I experienced in anyone but you. You deserve to know what it is like to lose all the children that you love. That's an imprecation, just like the Psalms. But when we understand that that mother is speaking out of the pain of her own loss, mm-hmm. we can identify with it. I mean, the moment, the point there is not to judge the mother. The point is to say, I can't imagine what it's like to experience the pain you're experiencing. And we're invited to do that with the Psalms. So even though I think that the Psalms literally say things that are in error about God, they're inerrantly included so we can identify with them. But we are also called to read them transformationally through Jesus, who calls us ultimately not to end with the hatred of our enemies, but rather the love of our enemies. And so that would be an example of of how you would now, you could scale that up for the whole Mm -hmm. genocide of the Canaanites and read it consistently with your Christian convictions and your moral intuitions. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm following this move here. So when I reflect on my own, like, really awful experiences, I would have these moments where I I would wish uh, really horrible things on them and would pray that God does these horrible things. But then as I go through the grief process, at some point, I might say something like, it's a good thing we worship a gracious God because I'm out of grace, but he's got some for you. So, um, and so you kind of, so you start getting towards the other end of something that more closely reflects the love of Christ. Is that, so is that kind of the idea? So you're saying we should read the text in kind of this under, I guess the way we undergo our own grief, our own anger, our own, uh, you name it, sort of emotional process. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Uh, the Bible is nothing if not honest about the human mm-hmm. condition, right? And and so sometimes we have these, well, just forgive and forget or whatever. There's very simplistic understandings of how you get reconciled to another person. But the starting point is to be honest with your own feelings of rage and anger and, and be able to identify them and recognize them. And you got the Psalms, for an example, mm-hmm. that model this and invite us to identify with the psalmist. But the person who wants to end there, who continues to despise their enemies forever, that's where you get into trouble. So, I mean, I, I you know, give examples within the book, like, like you know, forgiving the challenge of forgiving a Nazi. When would you ever mm-hmm. do that? And so on, things like that. Right. And so that's where the rubber hits the road. Like, I'm in the shallow end of the pool when it comes mm-hmm. to life experience, uh, having been offended against. I can't imagine what it would be yeah. to have my child lost to a drunk driver or something. But uh, I do know that there are people who have experienced that kind of alienation Mm -hmm. and pain, and many of them are found in Scripture. And so I'm invited Mm -hmm. to recognize what their story is, but then also read it through Christ, who himself, when he was being crucified, said, forgive them for they know not what they do. That, for me, should try to be the end goal of of my own transformation. Mm -hmm. So I can see this quite easily with the case of, like, the Psalms. I mean, like, I can really see this because you can even see in some of the Psalms, like, the psalmist goes through like his own pain and grief. And then you start to see eventually some kind of message of hope like emerges towards the end. But when I look at the, the, the Canaanite case, like how does, how does that work with the Canaanite case exactly? Like, cause I've got like kill them all. And then, and then what? Like, I, like, so I'm, I feel like I'm missing a little piece here. Yeah. So, well, one example is if that I consider briefly in the book is Eric Siebert. He's a, 
pacifist uh, and a biblical scholar, great scholar, he's written a couple books on this, Disturbing Divine Behavior and the Violence of Scripture. And he proposes, for example, that when we read the Old Testament, Hebrew Scripture, through Christ, we are called to, to read not only with the Israelites, but read with all oppressed peoples, that God's intentions truly are global, universal. Uh, and so that includes, among other things, reading with Canaanites. So maybe part of our participation within the story as Christ followers is to read not only with the Israelites who are seeking a homeland, but with the Canaanites who are dehumanized and dispossessed in the narrative through the process of the Israelites coming to occupy their land. And then look for the Canaanites in our own midst, which I think comes back to this whole process of reading for the transformation of love to the end of love of God and neighbor. That it, even if we don't know what to do with a particular text, if a particular interpretation leads us to dehumanize other human populations, then I think we are reading it wrong. So mm -hmm. like, even if you're not satisfied with what Siebert or others have proposed with that, um, I think we're better off saying, well, then maybe I don't even know how to interpret this. Maybe I don't know how to interpret the continuity error uh, in The Shining. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to conclude that Kubrick made a mistake because I know who Kubrick is as a right. filmmaker. I'm not going to conclude that God made a mistake, even if I'm not exactly sure how to interpret the Canaanites. Okay, so that's the idea here. All right, so I've got I've got one final question for you. So I would imagine people listening at this point, they might be like kind of frustrated about how complicated all this biblical interpretation stuff is. And so they might be asking, like, why didn't God just reveal himself more clearly? What would you say to someone who asks a question like that? It's a great question. I actually devote the last chapter of the book to that precise question. I um, consider, for example, the case of Insane Clown Posse. Mm -hmm. So this is a horrorcore rap band, uh, which is definitely not within my uh, sphere of, of it's not on my Spotify playlist. So, you, so you're, you're not a juggalo. You're not a juggalo. No, I'm not a juggalo. That's, 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 that's probably for the best. So yeah. yeah, I have been to All That Remains concert in the last there few years. Go. And Lacuna Coil and Uriah nice. Heep, Helix, Def Leppard. I don't know if you like Def Leppard. But, but yeah, this is a little bit outside my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. But these guys, they're well known for having really sort of extreme misogynistic and violent lyrics and so on. And... About 10, 12 years ago, they came out and they said, actually, all that we've done is it's ironic. And really, the, the message of our albums is that you need to follow God and get your life in order. And, and mm -hmm. we're showing the depravity of man, of humanity, and kind of trying to warn you away from that. And then there's a really interesting, John Ronson wrote an article about this and said, you know what, it, it seems like, I don't know that you can justify having misled people for a couple decades. Because <laughs> it, it's clearly, because you mentioned the Juggalos are known for being this kind of very scary gang. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it seems like a lot of people didn't quite get the message. In fact, I, I can't help but also indulge in another example. Uh, Beastie Boys, their mm -hmm. song Fight for Your Right to Party, was originally intended as a, a kind of a sarcastic uh, play on the party song. And unfortunately, their fans didn't get it. Uh, and thought, no, this is a great party song. I remember, you know, we were in the, yeah, fight for your right to party right. in high school. So we kind of missed the point. And so maybe God then has has been inept as an author. So I talk about the ethics of authorial amb ambiguation. Like at what point is an author or a producer of content being unethical with respect to their obligations to their audience if they create something that is sufficiently ambiguous that it could mislead a reasonable interpreter? So, uh, yeah. Now, I... In one sense, this is like the problem of evil mm -hmm. honed down to the interpretation of text. 
at what point is the sort of evil of misinterpretation justified? And, and I do think that while a person can reasonably think, oh, there's just too much ambiguity there for it to be justifiably produced by God, there's too much room for errant interpretation. Um, I think that also that it's a person like myself can say, well, based upon all else that I know, I don't think that we're in a position to say that. Hmm. Um, a cover of one of my previous books, Conversations with My Inner Atheist, includes a quote from Richard Feynman. He says, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And I like that ethos, that mentality, that mm -hmm. central to who it is, in fact, to be a Christ follower is to be ready to wrestle with questions. That's, that's what the word Israel means when Jacob was given the name Israel in Genesis chapter 32. It was because he wrestled through the night. Uh, with God. And we are mm -hmm. likewise invited through the text to wrestle through the night with God. So I think that the room for questioning is central to Christian identity. So I'll kind of throw that out there. No, I really appreciate that. Um, but Randall, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's been great. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on God's love and the doctrine of hell.